because we're currently in a series right now talking about um, how to change the world. Um, we're doing this uh, first by just glancing at Scripture, the, the kind of the big story of Scripture as this sort of roadmap for change. Um, this idea, this assumption that God has actually been um, very strategic over a very long period of time to bring about good change in the world. And so we're looking at this big story of Scripture, where then we're dropping in, observing up close and personal a story each week as an example of God's uh, sort of principles at work around change in the world. So last week we started with creation and worked our way through Moses. Um, we went from this idea of God dealing with the world at large to really choosing to change the world through a particular people, a people that would become a family, a family that would become a nation, and that change would somehow be born uh, quite literally out of this this family. Today, we're going to skip over quite a bit of the story of God in Scripture. Um, we're going to skip over how the people actually became a nation and moved into the promised land. We're going to skip over people like Joshua, uh, the days of the judges with people like Samson and Deborah. We're going to skip over the kings, uh, Saul and David and Solomon. We're going to skip over how Israel eventually fell away from God and was eventually taken over by their enemies and spent 70 years as prisoners of war. And so we're going to skip over people like Daniel and Esther. And we're going to skip over when they returned back to the promised land and the rebuilding of the walls and the, the temple and people like uh, Nehemiah. And we're going to skip over them the next 400 years that many of us aren't really familiar with in events like Hanukkah and the Maccabean Revolt. And we're going to land instead um, in a little manger in Bethlehem where change would be born. After all of the prophets, the leaders, and the struggle and the drama, God would be born as one of us, as the person of Jesus. And while all of the events that we're going to skip over, each of those could, could have their own sermon, and we could spend time and learn and pull from them really principles that God was using to partner with just ordinary people to bring about change. Um, we're going to skip uh, to, to Jesus, uh, partly because we don't have control over when Lent starts and that begins a new series. So this is a very practical reason, because we could spend a lot more time with this. But um, also because one of the most significant changes in the world happens when God takes on flesh and lives amongst us. That God's overall strategy is almost like lived out in a, a significant way by the way Jesus taught, the example that Jesus gave, the sacrifice that Jesus made, his death, his resurrection. That that, that, that has been, without question, one of the most significant changes that God has ever brought to the world. Um, whether we even believe in God, we can see this. Um, because when you look at the influence that Jesus has had, it's, it's significant. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And today... 2.4 billion people claim to follow Jesus. In some way or another, that's, that's a third of the world's population has some connection, some identity, some, their identity is somehow tied to this person of Jesus. They, they claim Jesus on some level, a third of the world, more than any other religion. And his teachings and his presence, and even just the way that he changed culture is, is played out and has significant influence in all of these other places where people don't even claim Jesus. Um, so not only do a third of the world claim to be, follow Jesus, but every other facet of, facet of the mo modern world has been impacted by Jesus, too. If you look at the history of hospitals, universities, nearly any historic social service that tried to make the world a better place or serve the poor or care for the sick or any of those types of agencies, if you look back through most of the world even, but most definitely in parts of the Western world, and you look at their history, there's this tie to Jesus, Someone who started it was a follower of Jesus. 
And I, I realized this once when I was like, man, all, like, almost all the hospitals have a religious affiliation. Have you thought about that? I'm sure there actually are hospitals now that don't, um, and I'd be curious to see the new hospitals that are starting without it. But a lot of the historic ones do, because it was kind of, in a lot of ways, in the history of culture and the history of social services, something that Jesus and his followers thought of. Like, Jesus introduced this idea. It doesn't sound profound to us, but you have to understand it was very profound at the time. He introduced this idea that, hey, no matter who you are, you're worthy of love. So even if you're on the, your deathbed, we shouldn't just throw you in the street. We should care for you. Even if we can't heal you, we should still love you. And, and even if you're a woman, you're still valuable. This was a novel idea at one time. I don't need to tell you that. Or children. The idea that children were valuable, not because of what they would eventually accomplish, but because of their own value. This is unique. Jesus brought these. These are things that we kind of take for granted and that other people are running with better than Christians. But this is something that Jesus really introduced. Um, uh, this, this is a great book that kind of unpacks some of this stuff. It's by John Ortberg. It's called Who is This Man? The Unpredictable Impact of the Inescapable Jesus. Um, I recommend it if you're curious to see the big picture way that Jesus has impacted culture. Um, especially in the Western world. Um, but that's the way it is. Jesus, whether you follow Jesus or not, the influence of Jesus is inescapable today. So the question I want to spend a little bit of time with and thinking about is this. How did Jesus become so inescapable, the influence of Jesus? How did he accomplish this? And, and what was Jesus' strategy and so that we can learn how we might may impact the world or change the world as well? Well, when you ask this question, what was Jesus' strategy for becoming so influential? The answer is actually kind of surprising. Because when we study Jesus' life, we realize that Jesus didn't change the world through fame or recognition or by having a large group of followers or because he went viral or because he had political power. He didn't go to a fine Roman school He wasn't particularly loud or showy. He didn't do it by tearing down other people. He didn't run a campaign. His Twitter didn't go viral. He wasn't rich. In fact, he was mostly homeless his three years of ministry. In fact, when Jesus lived, he wasn't particularly well-known. He barely shows up as a blimp on the radar of history, and he wouldn't have shown up at all if it wasn't for his followers. But during the time of Jesus, there's very little about Jesus that made that big of a splash in the Roman world. He was just yet another person claiming to be a Messiah, because this was a very common thing. Still is, by the way. If you go to Israel, you can see the political posters of people. It's a, it's a Jewish thing to, to claim to be a leader of, Jew, of the Jewish people, so Messiah. And so they have these political flyers. You can drive by them, and they're like, oh, that's somebody who's claiming to be a Messiah and a Messiah. It wasn't like there was just one Messiah. So Jesus is another person who's trying to start this movement, and he's not very well known. In fact, when he was done, this might surprise you, when he was done, he died, rose again, and then there's a story of him ascending into heaven. Scholars are like, yeah, he probably had about 150, maybe as little as 70 people following him. This group right here, guys, 70 total in this building right now. So that's like like three years of Jesus' ministry, and he's got like 70 to 100 people in his following. Like, real impressive, Jesus. Like, there are so many churches outpacing you. You are not doing a good job. But it's, but it's true. So how does Jesus, who really doesn't have that large of a following, who isn't like really that particularly well-known, who's upset a lot of people in the process, how does he go from this really small following to a movement that takes up billions of people and is a third of the world? Well, 
the way in which Jesus accomplishes this is actually really interesting. Because there were times when he would have crowds. He would, have, he would preach to, you know, thousands of people. And what we find when we read these stories is Jesus almost like um, would say things intentionally to push them away, if you read these stories. Um, and I'm going to reference a lot of stories of Jesus. I just want to say, if there's a particular story like, hey, where is that in the Bible? Put it on your Connect card. Or if you already turned that in, you know, send me an email. My email's all over the place. Um, I'll, I'll share it with you. I just don't have time. I'm going to be referencing a lot of stories. So just let me know, and I'll gladly share you the story. So he's preaching to a large crowd, and he would do things to, like, push them away, as if, almost as if, like, Jesus is thinking, with Jesus' strategy, if I have a large group of people, this huge crowd, then I'm not going to be able to change the world. Like, that's, that's what the, the logic we see with Jesus, which doesn't make any sense. Like, Jesus, you had a huge following, and one time they came up to him and said, hey, we want to make you king. Talk about being able to change the world like that. They're like, they're ready to make him king. They were ready. And he's like, no, 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 no. And then he went off alone and, like, said some things. Like, he's like, well, you can't be my follower unless you eat my bl- drink my blood, eat my body, which scared a lot of people away. And it was like not only this deep sacramental language that we eventually develop and we're going to share in a little bit later, but it was intentionally meant to make people uncomfortable. So they were like, stop following him. Jesus' strategy was to reject the masses and instead invest in a few people. And it's kind of a brilliant strategy, and here's why. If Jesus was really good and he was able to attract a large group of people every day of every year of his ministry, and then his ministry was able to continue for years and years, the growth of Jesus' movement would look like this graph. This is really simple. This is basic arithmetic. It would be addition. He would grow by addition. And this red line is, is impossible to accomplish, but let's just imagine that it was. And so here, this red line, um, Jesus grows by a thousand followers every day. So it's like his, he's literally, he's going viral. So every day for multiple years, he grows by a thousand followers. And that's, that's what he does. He, he attracts this crowd. The blue line is, um, on the other hand, not particularly impressive. But this blue line represents what it would look like if Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he just invested in one person for an entire year. So instead of attracting a 1,000 people every day, he would invest in one person one year. But he would invest at a level at which, at the end of that year, that person knew enough about what it meant to live like Jesus that he would also be, or she would also be able to invest in someone else. So the first year, it'd be Jesus and someone else. The next year, it would go from two to four. And then those people would have that level of investment that it would go from four to eight. And so it would be growth by multiplication. Now, at first, it wouldn't be very impressive. But if you extend this out just a few more years, it's, I mean, you know, it's basic math. This multiplication becomes huge. This, if you ever wondered how somebody with just about 70 to 100 people at the end of three years would have a movement that takes up a third of the world, even though he wasn't really popular at the time, you're like, how is that even possible? This is, this is how it's possible. It wasn't the crowds that mattered to Jesus. It was the quality of his investment in a few people and his continued investment in them through the power of the Holy Spirit to keep the movement going. It was one person investing in another person who, whose time they eventually were able to invest in someone else who was able to then invest in someone else who was able to invest in someone else. It was simple multiplication, and it worked. You guys are familiar with Ancestry.com you know, or the DNA tests that are out nowadays? You familiar with that? 
Um, you can look up and you can see your whole family history, you know. Um, I haven't done it yet. Anyone, anyone done it? Uh, looked up your family history or like your ancestral history or like the DNA, like going back. It's, it's in the news every once in a while because someone doesn't. It doesn't turn out the way they expected. It's funny. But um, I, I wondered, I just trying to imagine what would it look like if there was like a web, like ancestryfaith.com. Like you could do this, but not from your biological lineage, but like your faith lineage. If you could track the line of how you came to know Jesus or how you became a follower of Jesus. Like, you, you're able to go back, and I'm able to look and say, like, okay, here's the people, um, maybe not just one person, but multiple people who have particularly invested in me. You can think of them for yourself. You have people in your life that is the reason you're here. Whether it's one or, or many, whether it's your parents or it was someone else, there's people in your life that poured into you, that shared their faith with you, that offered their advice to you, that cared for you, that showed you what love meant. And then if you, if in this imaginary website, you're able to look at the people that invested in them, Right? And then the people that invested in them and invested in them and then invested in them. I wonder who would be in that line, like down the road, does, is, is like St. Francis of Assisi down there somewhere in my line? Like he invested in someone who eventually invested in me. Wouldn't that be cool? One thing I would guarantee you is this. If you followed that line all the way back, you would make your way all the way back to God in the flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, who had chose 12 disciples and a few other people, including women and children, to be his followers, and he invested in them hey, you would, you would find your way back to there. It works. It's how we are today. It's, uh, the fact that you're here today is proof that it works. So the question we have to ask now is like, okay, so Jesus changed the world by investing in people. What does that look like? How do we invest in people? Well, I want to state the obvious. Jesus didn't invest in people by just hanging out with them over coffee and talking. Nothing wrong with that. I love coffee, and that's actually where a lot of my discipleship or investment happens. Um, and Jesus did hang out with people around food, but Jesus was actually engaged in a very intentional investment strategy when it came to investing in people. So if you have any interest in changing the world, listen, friends. This is how Jesus changed people who would eventually change the world. Jesus would invite people to share life with them. And then Jesus in a very intentional, strategic way, would take these people who didn't know anything. You know, like you had a zealot and a tax collector and a couple ship, ship, uh, fishermen and all this. You know. He would take them, and he would put them in the most awkward, tense, difficult, challenging situations and show them how to do life differently in the context of difficulties. This has happens over and over in Scripture. One time, um, Jesus was at a dinner. He was with a bunch of religious people who had a lot of money and cared about things being proper. We've referenced this story recently. It shows up in a couple of different places. Well, in this particular story, a woman who was a sex worker, somebody who uh, um, sold herself for money, uh, comes into the space. You can imagine, right, how awkward this is. You've you, you got these two worlds. They don't mix the worlds, people. Like, we don't, we don't talk... We, just keep, I'll interact with her on the street, I'll give her something, but don't bring her into a board meeting. That's, she comes in, she washes Jesus' feet, and, and for many of us, something like that could be kind of tense, especially if it's happening to us, not for Jesus. Just another opportunity for him with his disciples to help them make just a, a, a minor shift, just like a chiropractic adjustment. 
a little shift on how they view humans, how they view the value of human life and the importance of relationships. A little shift that would eventually fuel a movement. One time, Jesus is speaking to crowds and crowds of people. I referenced this earlier, and they're all hungry. And the disciples are like, "What? Are, we should send them home. We don't have anything to feed these thousands of people." And Jesus is like, "Well, actually, could you? Why don't you go ahead and feed them?" He tells. He doesn't even ask them. He just tells his disciples to do something that's literally impossible to do. There's no catering services. They don't even have a budget for it. And he says, "Feed. Just you feed them." And they have to figure it out. It's once again this environment where they have to like wrestle and they and, and, and in the midst of all that they make a little shift and they realize, oh, like the things that God is going to ask this movement to do are literally impossible. And I can't do them without Jesus. But what we can do is we can bring what we have and they find a couple loaves and fishes, if you, if you know the story, and something beautiful happens. And a little shift happens in the disciples' mind because they found themselves in a situation that was so difficult. And they had to respond to it. One time Jesus was debating, actually many times, Jesus was debating the religious elite. And they would come and they would ask him questions, trying to catch him off guard. They would debate things like marriage and heaven and hell and government and whether we should pay taxes and politics. And what, what do we actually mean when we say we love our neighbor? And who exactly is our neighbor? Like things that, the kind of debates that can get a little heated, even today, right? But not for Jesus. Because yet again, it's this opportunity for his disciples to make little shifts in how they view the world and how they view theology and how they view what it means to engage in conversation. And not just for the sake of the issue that's being discussed, but the way Jesus does it, how he speaks with love and truth, but is really clever and he's always turning questions back on themselves. And, and in the midst of all of that, these disciples are watching, it's making these little shifts that will eventually fuel Movement. Another time, they're caught in a storm. They're going to drown. They're going to die. Terrible situation. But it was in part, it was like Jesus is there, and it's once again, it's, an, a training op- it's a training exercise. It's an opportunity for them to learn what it means that Jesus is with us in the storm. And, and I won't even get into the theology of water and storm and the Hebrew faith and what it all means because it's very profound. But it was, something was happening there about their theology and what it meant for God to have control over our chaos. And a little shift happens, and that shift is one of the things that would fuel this movement. And Jesus would heal the sick, and he'd give sight to the blind, and he addressed uh, mental illness and cast out demons. And, he, and each time that he's engaging by caring for and, and interacting with, and the way that he talked to people who were often on the margins, the disciples are watching that happen. Can you, can you imagine what it's like to spend that kind of time with Jesus in the kind of places Jesus tended to find himself, how that would change you? And you begin to understand how this movement took on, how this church was able to be born and to live differently and to view the world differently and to view people differently, and it would literally change the world, and I believe at our best still is. In fact, one time, Jesus is with his disciples. He's going to share communion, but we're not there yet. They're all sitting on the floor. That's how the tables were arranged. And Jesus is the master, and Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is the one they all look up to. I mean, he's taken them through so many experiences. He look, they all look up to him. And uh, he gets up, and he goes, and he grabs a basin of water and a towel, and he starts washing their feet, which was something the lowest of servants did, right? So now the master is becoming the servant. And friends, the disciples were very uncomfortable with that. If you ever had your feet washed, you can understand why. It's kind of, it's kind of awkward and uncomfortable. But then for Jesus, who this person you look up to, you know, to do that, like so much so that Peter's like, stop, Lord. 
You're not going to wash me. He says no. You're not going to do it. And yet Jesus, once again, he's like, no, this is, like a, this is part of the experience. So he's, he's like making these shifts in how they view what a leader should be, what a teacher should be. Shifts, friends, that would fuel the movement. Shifts that we oftentimes don't make in our own lives. I wonder, this is really, you know, this is really, this question really hit me this week. Um, this last season of my life has been difficult for a lot of different reasons. You know, there's just no margin. We're busy, and there's a lot going on in the church, and it's just, you know, you wonder if it's just going to collapse at some point because I watch a lot of things. Like, I like post-apocalyptic movies, so I'm like worst-case scenario guy, and I'm like, you know, anyway, that's my personality, so you're welcome. <laughs> and just so it's just hard, and I was, I was thinking about this, and I was like, I often just, I don't think of struggles or tension or difficult conversations or difficult issues or difficult people even as opportunities for Jesus to change me. I don't think of it like that. Not, I should, shouldn't I? And I wonder if there's something going on in your life, something that's like been a little bit of a struggle or maybe it's been awkward or it's been tense or it's just like, this is really messy. Why, why in the world would I be in a situation that's as messy as this? Like human relationships shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't feel this way. Like why? If you've ever been there, is it possible that you're not there alone? That, that Jesus is still alive and well? What if that was true? That the Holy Spirit was still active in this world and that, that in that midst of that, there's, there's actually a different way to handle it than what most people do. There's a different way to live. There's a different way to respond. And that if we're attuned to the, to the presence of Jesus in our midst, that we might be able to sense that and that, that we might be able to make a minor shift in how we handle conflict, how we handle tension, how we handle, I don't know, what, what's going on in your life. Is it possible that you could walk away from that, the type of disciple who not only would change the world, but be able to pass on wisdom that you would never have otherwise? Here's what I want to share with you. Change three things. Just three, three, three easy steps to changing the world. So you can short enough to tweet. One, follow God into difficult places. If you're following Jesus and your life is always comfortable, you're not following the Jesus I read in Scripture. So what comfortable? You know. So the the question becomes: What uncomfortable place are you avoiding? Right. Follow God into difficult places. Difficult conversations, difficult, follow, follow God. And, and I'm not saying that the bad things that happen to us are because God, you know, God wants them to happen. I don't believe that, but I do believe that when difficult situations come along, God can redeem them. Okay, so I just want to be clear about that. I'm not saying that God wants you to suffer. Follow God into the hard stuff. Or The second one is when you're in the hard stuff, stop, shift your perspective, and remember that God's still there. Shift the perspective and remember that God is still present. So the question becomes, you can put up those questions, Max. Um, do you believe that Jesus still sits with you in the storm? If you find yourself in a difficult space, maybe it's because God led you there, like God led Jesus into the wilderness or his disciples into all of these situations, if you, or whether because you stumbled in there because of a choice of your own or because of someone else's choice, once you're there, regardless of how you got there, do you remember that Jesus is there and that maybe there's something we need to learn? The third step is pass it on, right? Invest in someone who can invest in someone else. 
So the questions become, what storm have you been avoiding? Do you believe that Jesus sits with you in the storm, and who are you investing in? Who are you passing on what you've learned? Who are you inviting into hard stuff as well? One of the things we talked about last week is that God changes the world through immigrants, um, literally because the people of Israel were immigrants, but also as a, as a biblical metaphor for what it meant to live as foreigners and aliens in this world. That, that if we want to change the world, we can't live like the world. That's, that's what we're getting to here. If you want to be different like Jesus, if you have some other vision for what the world should be like, then just, you know, then Jesus is useless to you, and that's fine. Um, the principles around investing and multiplying still apply. But if you want to change the world like Jesus is doing, then you got to go to the difficult places. you got to make sure you're staying in tune with Jesus who's there and learning from Jesus, and you got to be willing to pass it on to other people. One of the things that I think we often struggle with is... We wonder whether, whether Jesus is actually there. One of the promises that Jesus makes in the New Testament, when he specifically sends them out in the Great Commission, is that, lo, I will be with you always. I'll never leave you or forsake you. One of the things that we gravitate towards, and one of the reasons why we were able to remember and trust this, is when Jesus was with his disciples, he, he, did, he washed their feet, and then he would share with them in a supper. He actually had um, uh, some wine. We don't have wine today. Sorry, friends. We have grape juice and um, uh, um, bread. And he would break the bread, and he would share with disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he, he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And it was this idea that they couldn't turn away from the fact that Jesus' life Death, resurrection was what they needed to sustain their life. That's what food and drink is this idea of like you have to eat in order to live. And he's like, you guys are going to live off of my sacrifice. This is the bread that I give you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. It felt like he was leaving them because he actually would, he would ascend into heaven and they were left to do it on their own. And sometimes it feels like that. But he says, no, you're not, because every time you eat and every time you drink, you're going to remember that my sacrifice, what I've done, what I've accomplished, and everything leading up to that, all of my teachings, goes with you still. I'm going to invite the, uh, a few of our musicians to come up, and, um, uh, uh, and then uh, our communion stewards can come up as well. And um, we're going to take communion. It's really simple. Um, you'll come forward. You'll take a piece of the bread. You'll dip it in the juice, and, uh, and then you can go back to your seat. As they get set up, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Will you pray? God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fall on these elements of bread and juice, that you'd make them be for us the very body and blood of Christ, that we might be the body of Christ broken for this world. That you'd meet us in this moment, that your Holy Spirit will remind us just how close you are, that, that we live off of what you've given to us, that you are able to sustain us, that you're able to carry us through, that whatever it is we're going through, that you've got us, that it's not the end of the story, and that we'll come out by your grace somehow better. That 
that the way in which we handle the difficulties in life can in some weird, strange, mysterious way actually make the world a better place. Holy Spirit, be with you in your name. Amen. There's no one to dismiss you. You can just come forward as you feel led and um, uh, use this time as a, a time of uh,